Welcome to the Stories of Light podcast. Are you an entrepreneur searching for God-centered mentors and inspiration to help you build your business? Are you striving for success or seeking to serve the kingdom? Do you want to build your business His way? You're in luck, friend. I'm Heather, and I'm so excited to share the stories of entrepreneurs just like you, who are not only a light for Christ through their business, but are willing to share their wisdom and pour into you. Get excited for today's interview. Hey, friends, and welcome back to the podcast. It's actually been a minute. And as you know, this is something the Lord has just put on my heart to just take the next step forward and be on the lookout for amazing stories and people to be able to share with you. And the minute that I reconnected with this dear, dear friend of mine, Katrina Bowers, that you're going to meet today, I just knew that her story was absolutely perfect for this podcast. She actually just retired almost a year ago in January uh, as a senior director of development for the Terry College of Business at UGA, University of Georgia, go dogs. And that's a really big deal. Um, I want her to tell you more about it, but it's one of the largest business schools, certainly in the country, definitely one of the most prestigious And she had a long, amazing season there and is transitioning into a new season with retirement. And she's let the Lord lead her the whole way. So Katrina, thank you so much for being here with me today and sharing your story. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my honor. And I know we have a lot to chat about, but I want people to kind of get to know you and they're going to fall in love with your your accent, by the way. I love it because you're a Georgia girl like me. (laughs) And we kind of have some background there, but tell us. Um, Just a little bit more about you, the basics that make up who you are, even outside of business. Well, thanks. Um, Well, I am a a Christian. I was um, born and raised in a really small town, Um, really good family life, had some challenges. But those challenges, of course, like we all have in life, um, bring us to where we are today. And I think my um, career is a result of attending the University of Georgia and building a network that led me back eventually to work with the University of Georgia. And I had a career where I worked with generous people. Um, I was a development director and some people don't know what that is, but it's a a fundraiser. Some people would call me a gold digger. Um, But ultimately, I, I like to say I connected passions and pocketbooks and I've lived a life of generosity. Um, I've been influenced by donor after donor after donor. And I have just seen generosity at work and the impact that it can make. And at some point, it didn't even get to be about the money anymore. It just got to be about the impact and what a journey and blessing it was for me to be a part of all of that. Oh my gosh. I love hearing your, your heart on that. And that's one of the things that impacted me and just got off the golf course with a friend. And I was telling her a little bit about your story and what makes it so special is that when you take something like fundraising, which essentially that big title, the senior director of development, you were in charge of some of the biggest campaigns or the biggest campaign, first of all, in the history of the University of Georgia. But you were making some big asks and working with some people who were gifting very generously. But one of the things that you shared with me um, that I can't wait to hear more about is that truly, I think the reason you were so successful in that role and in, in, in your job was it was what you were figuring out the way that would serve the people who were being generous and gifting and making such a huge contribution. And it wasn't just about what you could get. It was about what you could give back to them. And 
I just, a heart like that. No wonder you've had such an amazing career. So tell us a little bit more about how you got into that role. And was it scary at first being, you know, a fundraiser? I know that you were the director of development also for the School of Family and Consumer Sciences, which is my school. I graduated from Georgia too in fashion, fashion merchandising. Um, and so how did you get into that? And what made you decide to do it? Well, um, I fell into it. Like, like a lot of us, we go to school and we major in something and we imagine our lives are going to look one way and then they look a different way. God sometimes has different um, plans for us. And I did um, major in consumer economics in the College of Family and Consumer Sciences at UGA. And looking back, it really prepared me for this career, but I thought I would be a business person in New York um, or I would do financial planning. That was the original goal that I had for myself. And so I, I studied, I majored in the right thing to prepare myself for that career. And, um, you know, life took me, I was married at the time to someone with a corporate career and in typical traditional fashion, I was following my husband with his career from state to state and not able to really feel like I could pursue the, the goals that I had. And, um, Life took me down a creative path of being an interior designer as I was moving from state to state. And um, the creative side of me was really at play there and it was really enjoyable. And so I found myself um, back in Athens, Georgia and going through a divorce and doing interior design work. And I was at a former professor's home. Shout out to Ann Sweeney, who is a networker among networkers within the Georgia and University of Georgia community. And I was working on her home that had um, burned and she knew that this job had come up at the College of Family and Consumer Sciences. And I can remember this was 1996. And she said, Katrina, the director of development job is open at our college. And I thought you might should apply for this. And I said, well, what does a director of development do? And she said, I have no idea, but you'd be great at it. <laughs> and, you know, just again, just an example of somebody investing in me and pouring into me and guiding me and coaching me. Well, I looked into it and, you know, back in 96, the University of Georgia didn't have to do a whole lot of fundraising. We were predominantly state supported. And while fundraising was nice, we didn't dedicate a lot of staff resources to it. So at that particular point in time, you know, 20 of us could have fit around a, a table that were doing development work at the University of Georgia. And the best skill that you needed was people skills. Mm. And luckily, I had developed some of those. I give a lot of credit to the 4-H club organization that was important to me growing up. And luckily, I got hired some way. I really thought that I would be out getting internships for students. I didn't even know what I was doing, but they somehow took a chance on me and offered me the job. And then I really realized that my job was to raise money mm. for the University of Georgia. And I was reminded of the two biggest fears that people often have in life. One is public speaking mm -hmm. and one is asking for money. And mm -hmm. I realized I had just set myself up for a fearful life by most people's standards. But, um, you know, just through mentorship and all, I I took the steps. We didn't have a, a firm training program at the university then. It's so sophisticated now. And so I learned a lot and was sort of gritty about going out and getting trained by well-seasoned professionals in the field. And I just over time, I learned it wasn't so much about 
no, sure, I had a goal. They needed me to raise X amount of money. And if I did it, I might be in trouble. But I soon realized that it was less about that. And it was more about these scholarships really needed to be funded and get into place. But we really had to have a rock star professor to come to the university to teach something. It really became that. And once you become passionate about the project, the money is just a a vehicle for making it happen. Hmm. Wow. I just love that even when you first got started, you could both acknowledge the scary side of it, but you could also honor the task. And you could realize that um, through the advice of someone who'd meant a lot to you, and her believing in you and knowing that even if she didn't really know what it, what it looked like, that you could do it and that someone needed to do it. And why not you? Right. And then look how that served you so much now. That's amazing. Well, I would love, you mentioned 4-H and I feel like this is a good opportunity. We have so much in common and I could talk to you for hours um, about this, but we actually have a lot of things in common as well. And you lived in Lakeland, Georgia for a time, which is where my beloved grandmother, which if, if you are an avid listener of this podcast, um, you likely listened to the episode with, with her um, a few episodes back and she has since passed. Um, and she was very dear to a lot of people, but you shared some incredible stories of the 4-H community of a small town like Lakeland, Georgia, and the impact that not only she made, but also her brother, who was my, I guess, great yeah, great uncle. Yes, yeah, great uncle that I didn't really know well. Um, so tell, let's go back a little bit to those days when you were in the tiny town of Lakeland, Georgia, and um, you know how that kind of served you. Certainly. Well, I graduated college early. I was twenty years old, and my dreams of going to New York and being a, a businesswoman um, changed. And um, God led me to being a county extension agent. It was a safe place because I had grown up in the 4-H club program. My mother had been a secretary for the 4-H office in Elbert County where I was from. It was safe. I was passionate about it. I knew I could do it. I um, wasn't so sure about Lakeland, Georgia. I I used to laugh with my friends and say, yes, I said I wanted to be a county extension agent. And they laughed and said, prove it. And they sent me to Lanier County, which was a very small county in our state, and I had to look it up to even see where it was on the map. Um, Life made it convenient for me to move in that direction. So I actually lived next door in Valdosta and commuted, and I was like the only car that went from Valdosta (laughs) to Lakeland to work, and I'd see all the cars going from Lakeland to Valdosta to work. And when you didn't have cell phones, that was fun in itself, was um, waving to all the regular cars in the morning. But That being said, I ended up in Lanier County, Georgia, and 20 years old, I was ready to, you know, set the world on fire and make the community a better place. And nobody had ever told me that I couldn't do any of those things. I had been brought up that I could do anything I wanted to do. And so here I was, Lanier County, and I um, embarked on putting on programs and, you know, nothing was too big. And I um, had all these ideas that hadn't been done before and brought a very youthful energy to um, to a community that had um, that had not had a strong. Well, I wouldn't say it hadn't had a strong program, but but needed a little renewal in their 4-H program and their extension programming. And I very quickly just felt literally just arms around me of being welcomed. I. I will always be moved to welcome a young person to my community because of what was modeled for me 
in Lanier County, Georgia. And three people really come to mind. Um, one was Jay Shaw, who was the mayor at the time. He, he later became a state representative. And one was Robert Patton, your great uncle, and one was your grandmother, Nell Rockmore. And they, um, you know, looking back on it, they were some of the most influential people in the community. I was too green to probably even realize that at the time, but they literally just like raised their hand and like got out of their cars to come into my office to meet me and to ask how they could serve me. And again, um, being pretty green, I took advantage of it and um, put them in my Rolodex at the time and called on them often. And they just, you know, I certainly didn't have the power to make things happen. And as I grew in my career, I learned about the power I did have and didn't have. Mm -hmm. But because we were all just leading with service, they used their influence and their their power to help me accomplish certain things. And just, um, you know, I have a memory particularly of uh, Jay Shaw, who was the mayor. He was the mayor of a town. He had a full-time insurance business. I mean, he was a busy guy. But we, um, I really empowered the, the 4-Hers to come up with their own programs at their school meetings. They'd have a 50-minute time during school, and the vice president, their job was to get a program. And I, over time, would laugh as I would go into these 4-H club meetings time after time after time. There would be Jay Shaw sitting there because he made himself so available as the mayor that the sixth grade vice president could probably call him the day before and ask, would he please come to a program at 1015 at the, you know, middle school and he would be there. And so we worked together in so many ways. And I saw how, you know, he served his community and how he served sixth graders when he had businesses to run. And then I, I think about um, your great uncle, um, Robert Patton, he was in the state legislature, paved the way. He mentored Jay Shaw to take his place. And, you know, Bob Patton, which uh, people that knew him well called him, he was very influential, one of the more senior members. And I just had a moment of, you know, he was always very nice to allow us to bring a page, a 4 hr to be a page and serve at the General Assembly. And, and it was typical to bring two. <laughs> per year. So every representative usually had two per year and they would give that honor to a young person in their community. And I was meeting with Mr. Bob one day and I was like, how do we pick two? And he said, well, how many would you like to take? I said, I've got 20. I've got 20 of these wonderful deserving 4-Hers. An hour later, he calls me and he said, bring them. You want to bring them all on the same day? You want them spread out? Whatever you want to do. And, you know, what I learned from that was he used his his power and his influence in a good way. He was investing in young people. He taught me not to always accept the easy no for an answer, but to challenge the process when it felt right. And he just had a history of just paving the way and, and pouring into me. And um, there was a time we wanted to do a balloon release and we were celebrating proud to be drug free week. And I didn't realize that Moody Air Force Base cared if balloons were floating in the air and somebody all of a sudden was putting the shutdown on our balloon release schedule for Friday morning. Well, 
you know, Robert Patton and Jay Shaw, some combination of them, they made whatever phone calls and we, we released our pink balloons and we all pledged to be drug free for the rest of our life. And again, they're small things, but they were big things at the moment. And men like that recognized that and empowered me to do as good a job as I could with where I was in life. Then I think about your dear grandmother, Nell Rockmore, and um, Nell was the quintessential um, Southern welcome wagon <laughs> for Lanier County. And I was so honored that she would have me over. And, you know, of course, she wanted to invest in me and get to know me. But what I really learned from her, it was it was evident early on that she um, had been blessed with wealth. Um it was, but she didn't just write checks and make it easy on people. She, um, she gave to change. She gave to what she was really passionate about, but she also invested in people. And she had ways of letting me know that before a program sunk to come talk to her, but she would rather help me figure out how to keep a program from sinking. Mm -hmm. And just, you know, what I learned through that process was so good. And then I learned just through staying in touch with her years after I left Lanier County and was even at the University of Georgia. She, she is somebody, if I, if I could point to one person that I've ever known in my entire life that has invested in their community per se, it is Nell Rockmore. Mm -hmm. And she dug in and wanted to make that part of the world a better place. She didn't necessarily care about um, 200 miles away. She, she liked Athens, Georgia. She liked Atlanta and she would show up and, and care on some level, but boy, she dug in into her community and she had a vision to make it prettier. She had a vision to keep history alive. She had a vision to represent um, good people as great people. And she found ways of doing that through artwork in the community and the murals and the music that accompanied the, the murals through writing a book about the history of Lanier County so it wouldn't be lost and things that I'm sure I'll never know about. But she just really demonstrated how to pinpoint a passion project, mm -hmm. stay committed to it. Um, don't spoil it. Don't make it easy because, you know, the hard things in life aren't, don't come easy and they're more worthwhile when we have more buy-in. And I just learned so many intangibles from your grandmother and from your great uncle and from Jay Shaw. So I will forever treasure the five years that I had in Lanier County. And I am just so grateful that God tapped me to go to this small county that I didn't know and they didn't know me, but we're lifelong friends now. Oh my gosh, these stories, obviously they're so special to me because the, the people are special to me. But I, even before you mentioned my grandmother, I was starting to get emotional thinking about the fact that these people, your Miss Anne, your, you know, uh, the, the community of Lakeland really as a whole and how they served you and poured into you to allow you to then impact the University of Georgia in such a huge way, because <laughs> you said it was full circle, your experience there and the the confidence that they had in you there and just trusting in the Lord wherever he placed you landed you in a really big deal. And um, I want to talk more about boundaries in a minute and a couple of other things, but let's go back to that. The largest, if you're okay to talk about it, you um, in your last year brought in the single largest contribution 
to the University of Georgia, which is a huge deal. And to think that that wouldn't be possible without all of these big people taking small little steps to pour into you when you were not going to bring them anything at that point. Right. So talk more about that and, and, and how you can, you know, kind of see the Lord working his hand in your time at UGA to that incredible culmination uh, in your, in your last year. Wow. There's, that could be a whole nother podcast. Yeah. On that one question, but um, I, I was, I was trusted to, to help facilitate the largest corporate contribution um, ever to the university of Georgia. And I think just something that fell into play there that, that even goes back to your grandmother is motivation and people give money for different reasons. People's motivations are different. You can do a lecture on that. There's all kinds of reasons why people give, but I have learned that when you give from the heart, the impact is usually larger. Mm. Usually the monetary gift is larger as well. And working with corporations, they typically don't give from the heart. I, sh- mm. I hate to categorically say that, but their motivations are usually different. Mm-hmm. Um, individuals, a lot of times are motivated to give from the heart. And I'm not judging. Um, it is fine mm. to give because you need a tax deduction. It is fine to give because you want to see your father's name above an auditorium door. Um, it is fine to give for lots of reasons. Um But when you really give from the heart, Mm -hmm. I have observed that the impact is greater. And um, there was a company that um, I was able to work with. And and I don't think I'll mind. I don't think they will mind if we say their name, but it was Chick-fil-A. And they they are passion givers. And it just was very unique from a corporate perspective to see such passion giving and the thought process that they went through. Um, you know, I could have inserted one dollar figure or another dollar figure or a different dollar figure. And that was the the less important conversation. The more important conversation was the impact of the gift and how specifically it might change lives. And that goes back to what I learned from Nell Rockmore um, early on um, is, you know, she pinpointed her motivation was to make a difference in her community. She just really wanted to see and feel the impact. That's what motivated her. Mm-hmm. And I mean, she said the words to me, I just want to leave this part of the world better than I found it. And she wanted others to enjoy the Lanier County that she had known and loved. And so I just, I've just learned to discern what motivates someone when they're getting involved with a charitable gift. And again, no judgment, but identifying heart work through giving is important to determine that motivation. And that's when I can get really excited because the impact's usually going to be pretty darn good. That's so amazing. And it's biblical too. I, I, uh, you know, I can't help but bring up second Corinthians nine, each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. And actually continues, you will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. And wow, I mean, I just got chills because if that doesn't sum up your career and, you know, the stories of uh, the, the impact that you made through that, but also the impact that these incredibly generous people have done 
and the way it all works together. It's just, it's so good. It's so good. (laughs) It is good. And that's why my job was so fun. People would say, how do you ask for money? And I kind of have to straighten it out because I just never really looked at it as asking for money. It was a byproduct. Um, You know, I would connect passions and pocketbooks. And once we would get excited about something, the cost for doing that was X and we would work out how to, you know, did we need to pledge that amount or pay it through securities or, you know, put it on a credit card or whatever. How would we, that was just more of a um, means to an end. And, um, but you're right. God does love a cheerful giver. And when people would say, oh, I can never do what you do. I'm like, nobody is ever mad at me. I mean, I went my whole 30 years doing fundraising type work and nobody's ever mad at me. They would write a million dollar check and smile while they were doing it. Nobody is ever unhappy when giving away their resources. Think about it. Nobody has ever, have you ever known anybody that has given a donation that said, I wish I had it back? Have you ever known anybody who's given a donation and then suffered financially because they gave that donation? It just doesn't work that way. God loves a cheerful giver. And, you know, there's the separation of church and state. I didn't always lead with that in my work, Mm -hmm. but it was there and people felt it and it was evident. Goodness. Well, and the cool thing, and you kind of touched on this is especially working with the corporate environment. Some people did it not so much from the heart, but more for a tax purpose or for profit, but the Lord uses all of that. And there's nothing wrong with it being win-win. And and that, that was the thing that I can see sets you apart and the clarity that I can feel from you on like a scary subject, like asking for money is because you see that it's win-win, right? It, it serves all of the above. You're making an impact at wherever you're giving and, and the university of Georgia obviously can make a tradition, a, a tremendous impact. It certainly has for both of us. Um, but also it can be win-win from a tax deduction. It does lead to a cheerful heart because you're exactly right. When you can give from a place of abundance, it feels amazing. <laughs> it feels so good. So you get to see that you get to see those smiles, which in turn then motivates you to kind of get over that fear of, of asking for help. It's also interesting too. I've studied a lot about women in philanthropy and there's that Mars Venus thing is a, is really apparent, especially in fundraising. Women typically make fundraising decisions differently than men do. Mm-hmm. And so I had studied all of this. I had um, been to conferences. I, when I was at family and consumer sciences, it was predominantly a female alumni base. And I, I specialized, if you will, in female giving. Then I went to the Terry College that had predominantly more male giving at the time. So I've really seen it both at work. And I had one moment of real clarity that I just still chuckle about because I had always learned that women typically give for change and mm-hmm. men typically give for recognition. Again, no judgment. It, mm-hmm. the, the impact is great. And so I, I knew that. And so I would use that in my conversations with people because mm-hmm. I'm trying to help them to be motivated what they want to do. So I had a, a couple one time that named a classroom at the Terry College of Business. We were building six new buildings, super, super duper impact. Please go see the buildings if you're in Athens. And so I had a couple. Um, I had worked with the gentleman quite quite a while to make sure we had the name right. Did he want first name, middle initial, last name? 
did he want, you know, I'll make up a name. Did he want it to be the, the John R. Smith room or the Smith family room or the John and Carol Smith room? We just, we, we went over it and we put it in print. We figured it out. It's very important to him to get it right because it was perpetual. So we had the moment where I was able to bring the husband and wife into their classroom. It was built and have the ta-da moment. And for me, it was rewarding, but I had that moment of clarity about the Mars and Venus of, of fundraising when the couple walked in and she immediately walked to the window and looked out and said, what a beautiful view. Katrina, remind us exactly what classes are going to be taught in this room and how is it going to be used? And while I'm fielding that question, I look and he literally is looking up at the name on the, the room with his you know hands on his hips, just a moment of pure pride. And for him, you know, it, it was it was I've always wanted to be able to give back to my university. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be in a position where I could do this. And I've done it. I have achieved a goal. And for her, it was about, you know, what was going to happen the next hour in the classroom. They're all wonderful. Both are really great reasons. But it, it was it's really interesting. I think, you know, whether it's in fundraising or anything we do in our business, if we can just really learn what motivates people, then I think we can communicate better and um, and, and help present those rewards that they're seeking if we can understand the motivation. Yes. So what I'm hearing from you is that even though it can be uncomfortable to ask someone for help and certainly to ask them for money, when you can better understand what motivates them and what their passions are, like you said, tying passions to pocketbooks, right? <laughs> or both goes both ways, right? Then you can truly serve them in that way. And then you mentioned this too, that it becomes almost like a um, your motivation is to serve and what a, what a special way to do that. So do you have any tips for someone who maybe does have that fear of either asking for help or certainly asking for money, because not everybody's going to have the opportunity to work in fundraising. And most people, like you said, run from it, but certainly asking for help, asking for accountability, asking for favor, people are typically happy to do it. So what advice has served you or do you think would serve the listeners on how to just flex that muscle and get better with that? Well, there are definitely skills involved, but in terms of just overall advice, because, you know, hopefully a lot of us are involved in nonprofits at some point and fundraising is so crucial to that. I, I think, um, I think remembering that an ask has to be made and don't hide behind a letter. Um, we do have to send out mass appeal letters and emails and mm -hmm. those are important gifts to do right. But I think anytime you can have a face-to-face -face conversation mm -hmm. and a very honest conversation, I think you will be more successful. I think you can better speak one-on-one -on -one than a, than a one-sided approach from a letter. So the more personal you can make it, the better. And I do believe in very honest conversations. And once you've discerned that the person you're speaking with cares about the nonprofit that you're representing, then put it on them. How can I help you help this charity mm -hmm. that you care about? What can I do to help you help them? Mm -hmm. And a lot of times making a monetary gift is one of the easiest ways you can help them because they are busy. And sometimes we're at a stage in life where it's easier to write a check than it is to give up your time. 
Sometimes it's reversed. And I think we figure that out. Maybe this is a time where you can give more time in your church, or um, maybe you just don't have that resource right now. And it's easier to write a check. Have those honest conversations. How can you help them? The nonprofit needs it all. Your job's just to, to help do the connecting. Well, and, and having and honoring boundaries. I know you'd mentioned that, for example, with my grandmother, and now you're in the position now that you're retired and seeking other opportunities because you love what you do and you are, um, you know, the type that wants to continue making an impact. So, you know, how do you honor boundaries, both personally, but then also recognize that it's not just about what you can get from someone, but it's like you said, about how you can connect the two together. Um, boundaries are something that I've worked on. I was the, the, you know, kind of a typical personality on all the personality profiles as I've grown up to be the age I am now where I wanted to be a people pleaser. And, um, I literally have had to, to get coaching on boundaries. And so I have done some self-work to be able to put up boundaries. And, you know, one way that I'm doing it now going forward is trying to discern, what within the fundraising profession did I enjoy the most was most effective and I might serve best with and learning to put those boundaries up and not trying to do all the things that I was able to do in my former career, but to specialize, if you will, and put those boundaries up. And it's hard um, because I find a lot of things enjoyable, but I find it more enjoyable when I can move the needle more within a given hour or a day or year So I'm really focusing on moving the needle. And again, I was able to work with so many successful people and I've observed boundaries from your grandmother to um, executives at Chick-fil-A and all kinds of folks in between. And, you know, we, we learn through doing and we learn through examples of others. And I think we're always learning. So I'm still working on my boundaries and I'm practicing those at this phase in life as well. I love that. I love that you can admit it too, because I think it's something that what's interesting is that you aren't, I think what made you so uh, impactful in your role as a corporate career, right? Working for the University of Georgia was that you honored others' boundaries, that you were focused on the relationship, focused on how you could serve them. And you certainly honored theirs. Now you're in a season where because of your amazing career, there are opportunities coming your way. So now you almost have to honor, (laughs) honor yourself and honor those boundaries. And I just, I love that you can, you can be honest about that. And I also love that you brought up coaching because again, you're, you're not afraid to ask for help. And you mentioned you brought on a life coach and that's very exciting. And I just love that here, you're not just retiring and sitting back and resting on your laurels. You're like, how can I, how can I grow? How can I, how can I continue this momentum? So I think that's amazing. Do you want to share or do you have any, um, you know, visions for where you want the next year, five years, 10 years of your life to be? What, what's your goal? What's next for you? Well, my goal is to be still and listen, um, particularly mm-hmm. where God's leading me. I lived life at a pretty fast pace and probably didn't listen and discern from God as much as I should have. Mm -hmm. So I've really spent most of this year doing that. And I'm feeling led to doing fundraising coaching. There's, Mm -hmm. there are a lot of consultants out there and that feels a little bit formal for me. And um, I really love just getting in the weeds Mm -hmm. and sometimes you've got a well-seasoned development shop, but they just can't quite figure out how to, to get a campaign over a hump 
or maybe there is an employee that's just struggling a little bit and we just need that employee to hear things from a different perspective. Or maybe there's a strategy with an individual. They're just sort of stuck in a gift conversation and need to go from, you know, point C to point D. And I just, um, maybe there's some strategic planning or being creative on a particular campaign. Like how do we raise, you know, money for a new nursing program at a particular college? So I just feel like I could kind of jump in um, because I have done it a long time. I could just jump in in the weeds and help people and meet people where they are. And in little time, just sometimes talking through and, and coaching, um, maybe we'll just help them have a different perspective and help them get over a hump or help them explore a new opportunity or energize a different way. So I'm feeling led to doing coaching mm-hmm. from a fundraising perspective. And I'm sort of feeling my way out with what that looks like. I'm, I'm engaged with a, a, a few nonprofits now, and they are gracious enough to let me try it out on them and see how it's working. And so far, it's, it's enjoyable. And I feel like um, we are moving the needle. And that's important to me. I love that that's where, where your heart is going is how you can use your experiences to serve others to make the kind of impact that, that you've made. And I think, I think that's a beautiful step in the right direction, as you said, and I can't wait to see where that takes you. And I'm sure there will be people listening that either know of someone um, that is in that, that I call it a difficult role of fundraising. You're kind of changing my mind that it actually <laughs> it could sound appealing, but you know, that yes. is, is struggling. And obviously these times, everything has completely changed with, with COVID and um, you know, the environment that we live, live now and you know, gosh, don't even get started with the political <laughs> landscape of things. So there's always challenges. And I think sometimes when you, you can't really see the forest through the, the, the trees, asking for help from someone who can give that heart led guidance can serve them so well. And I just, I feel that this is such an amazing next step for you. And I'm really excited. Well, thanks. I think the, um, it's so, it's so nice to have had a career and to be into retirement and I'm never going to say the paycheck isn't important, but you know, the, somebody that I deem very wise once said that the paycheck should be the least appealing part of your job. And it actually was, I mean, I, I always wanted a a nice paycheck. It was a measure of worth, if you will, but you know, it was, it was the service that, that drove me and, um, and the service is still a driving factor for me because of all the influence, even going back to when I was a little girl, I've just seen charity at work mm-hmm. in so many ways that I think it's become part of my DNA and I'm almost addicted to it. And while I'm not always able to write as large a check as other people can, being a part of helping them, I, I get I, a beneficiary of the rush, so to speak, that they get in helping them move the needle for the charities of their choice. I love that. And you mentioned something, I think it was when we were catching up before we, uh, we hit the record button, but you mentioned that the money side of it, the income side of it, whether it's, you know, adding on an additional income stream, or again, like you said, taking a job, um, it's really just a measure, right. Um, of, of the, the work, the the financial part of it is just a a measure of it. Well, I really look at it as if I earn more money, it gives me a chance to be more charitable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will, and I'm not sure I will invest time in charities that I wouldn't be interested in investing in because getting passionate is, you know, drives us. It has our blood pumping and it's easy to get passionate about a lot of things because there are so many nonprofits doing so many wonderful things out there. But um, 
you know, that's part of the setting up those boundaries is, mm-hmm. you know, I want to, to help charities that are interesting to me and would be ones that I would also be interested in investing in. And um, I've even had a conversation with my accountant, like, is it better to donate my time or is it better to collect a salary and donate, you know, some or all of the salary? And she suggested it was better to do the latter because no charity should ever um, depend on donated time. They should be able to pay for their resources and and raise money for the resources. So that was an interesting dynamic. So I'm thinking through, you know, mm-hmm. how can I be charitable and earning an income is one way to be charitable. Yeah, and practicing what you preach. And now you get to be, as you said, one of those that's so generously gifting, come a long way from being the um, extension, the county extension of Linear County, right? And what a blessing because of that. And it's it's really cool to watch how the Lord showed up in your life and in your business and how I know he's continuing to And I'm just so thankful that we've connected again. And I know we've known each other for a long time and I've gotten to learn more about your story. And I just, I'm so thankful for your time today. And I know it's been so impactful for those listening. Thank you, Katrina. Thank you. Thank you. And during this season, we're recording this in December and um, this season is all about generosity. And um, it's a pleasure just to, to reflect on generous individuals and charities and the importance of nonprofits and the role that they play in our society. So let's just all find ways to serve each other. Yes. Send us, if you know somebody who works in a nonprofit or a fundraising or something in this, um, you know, in this environment, send them this podcast. I know they'll be so encouraged by it. And again, Katrina, what, what a blessing. Thank you again. And I just can't wait to see where this takes you. You're amazing. Thank you. I hope y'all enjoyed this episode and make sure to share with a friend. I'd also be forever grateful if you'd be willing to leave me a review over on iTunes. And don't forget to check out heatherkburge.com for lots more info. Have a great week.